Maps have long played an integral role in society. They've been used to discover treasure and foreign lands, to identify and locate constellations and stars, and simply to get to a relative's house on time for Thanksgiving dinner. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On today's show, we're exploring the power of the map. Coming up, my interview with New York City-based mapmaker Stefan Van Dam. It's been a wonderful journey to use the power of the map to um, get people to understand complex issues, primarily urban issues. But first, if you took the time to map your own memories, what would that map look like? Would it indicate a first kiss on the Brooklyn Bridge or a marriage proposal atop the Empire State Building? Becky Cooper distributed hundreds of blank maps of Manhattan and asked people to fill those maps in with whatever was meaningful to them. The project led to a book called Mapping Manhattan, a love and sometimes hate story in maps by 75 New Yorkers. I recently caught up with Becky to talk more about it. So tell me how this project came about for you. I understand it came about really quite by accident. (laughs) Absolutely. I was hired to be the copywriter for this map of all of the public art in New York. So I was meant to do this sort of travel guide. And I get to my job. It's the day after I finish freshman year of college. And my boss says, yeah, sure, you can uh, start writing that copy as soon as you're done with the map. I was like, wait, what do you mean? And she takes me over to the computer, opens a file on Illustrator, and it self-destructs. It's too big. It's too corrupt. It's like years and years and years of people trying to make this map of all the public art, and it's just, like, impossible, it seems. She says, yeah, so finish that, and then you can write. And I really wanted to write, and so, you know, I didn't have any graphic design experience. I didn't have any particular map background, except that I'm always lost, so I need a map. Um, and so I just, I, I did it. And the, the problem was, and she, she gave me sort of two pieces of advice. She wanted it to be as beautiful, three pieces, as beautiful as a poster, as thorough as possible, and as accurate as possible. And she used as her counterexample for accuracy the subway map of New York, because um, you know, I, I call Staten Island the Alaska of the map, but uh, Manhattan itself is squished in ways that's not just that somebody, you know, sort of took a corner and scaled it down. Downtown is blown up way bigger than it would otherwise be, and uptown is squished. And it makes sense because the subway map is meant to be used to convey information, and there are many more subway lines that cross down uh, downtown than, than uptown. And um, so she was like, no, we want we want to use the base map as, you know, perfectly planned or, you know, to, to represent the, the actual layout of the land as much as possible. And I want every single piece of artwork in the city on here and provenance and, you know, everything we can. And so I spend, you know, hours and hours and hours color coding these dots, placing these dots, doing everything. And I'm still, I realize, making these subjective decisions that, you know, does a carousel count as art or does the art in the gardens of Rockefeller University count as public. And so I was still, despite my effort to be objective, necessarily imparting my own vision of Manhattan, of what it meant to be public art, of my, you know, authority as cartographer. And I I came across my desk as I finished this map and, and I was cleaning it up before I went back to school for the next semester. These napkins that I had drawn of the places that I was going after work because I'm always lost. I always need a little like reminder. And they were just little schematic drawings of the city. And I, you know, didn't even bother to obviously label all these streets. 
but they told a more honest story, I felt, about Manhattan, about the way that it's lived, than this giant map that I was slaving over. And what I loved about it is that it wasn't trying to be this authoritative, thorough, complete version of the city, that in fact it celebrated its own bias, its own limitation. And I was like, well, what if instead of having one person pretend that they could possibly make a complete map of Manhattan, what if I had as many people as possible map the city that they're an expert in? Um, and so that's what I eventually did. So you created blank maps of Manhattan. Exactly. And you passed them around. Yes. Well, my initial idea was to turn the city into a sort of scavenger hunt. And I letterpressed these maps and hid them all across the city. I hid them in the back of cabs and in between the doors of Steinway and Sons and in copies of Catcher in the Rye and in Union Square's Barnes and Noble. And I like made a list of where all these were um, because I wanted people to change their conception of the city. I wanted them, if, I, if they were really going to think about their relationship with the place, I wanted the place to sort of play with them. And all these maps that I'd spent hours and hours and hours hand-making uh, disappeared. None of them came back except for this one uh, that I had dropped off on the High Line. So wait a minute. You had your address on the maps, and you asked people to send them back to you. I had my P.O. box in the back, and I dropped them across the city, and the, the instructions on the back of the map were to fill it out with whatever makes this place special to you. Um, the instructions were, you know, maps are more about their makers than the places they describe, and then fill it out and send it back. And you got one back then that during that initial take. And it was a scan. They said, you know, I gifted this to my partner as an anniversary present, and I can't bear to part with it. Um, and so I, I continued doing this, and it was only when I dropped off a map in a Lower East Side boutique, and it looked like I was stealing this pair of boots that I was slipping the map into, that I had this conversation with the, the boutique owner. And I said, well, this is my public art project. And she looks at me, and she starts telling me her New York story. And she's like, can I have a map? You're welcome to leave one in the pair of boots, but can I have one? And so I give it to her, and two weeks later, in that P.O. box that I had been diligently checking and you know, being very disappointed that it was empty, there's her postcard. Because I remember it said macaroni and cheese, which was the color of the crayon attached to it. And I realized that if I wanted people to share their story, and ultimately these maps for me are just people's stories, um, I needed to share my story and, and the project's story. And then how many did you receive? So when I finally gave out these maps the way that I ultimately decided to, which was by holding a shoebox full of maps and walking down Broadway, of the 3,000 that I handed out, I got over 300 back. And how varied were the stories on those maps? Uh, in incredibly varied. I mean, I, I made a point when I was handing out this map to hand it to the next person who was as different from the person I had just handed to as possible. Um, and so, you know, some people filled the map with, you know, different colored pools of fear and relief. Other people, <laughs> one person filled the map with every single way to exit Manhattan. So every bridge, every tunnel, everything. And it just like the, the, the blank canvas, it's hard to see the underlying map. And somebody else just filled out a map with one X and it says, met my wife. So people live the city, people experience the city very differently, and I think the maps, people felt free enough to express that on the maps, which I loved. Did you find any particularly surprising? Um, I think it was, it, 
what was surprising to me was how emotionally honest and vulnerable people made themselves on these maps. Um, that something that I was a perfect stranger, I just accosted them on the street and they, I gave them nothing in return. And people spent so much time filling these maps out. You know, I remember one where somebody was telling me about how New York came to embrace them in a way that no other place in the world had. Another person wrote about a place where he or she, I don't know, was drugged and was taken um, and and events of that night. It, it isn't just being proud of the fact that you know they own this particular version of New York. There was something really, I think, compelling about the project that people felt that it was a safe space to reflect not just on your relationship to a place, but the, the way that this place has allowed people to have a very particular experience. So while you were receiving all of these maps, all of these stories, did you know you wanted to do a book? I mean, what did you expect that you were going to do with all of these maps? Um, I told, I was in college at the time, and I told my college that it might be my thesis, uh, so they would give me stamp money. But I didn't, I couldn't imagine honestly writing a comparative literature thesis about maps, because it would, it would end up being or the way that I was imagining, in a sort of sterile piece about uses of space and place. And it, it would have taken away everything that I think was special about this project, which is the, the amount of heart um, that these people put into these maps. That it, for me, it's much, much more about storytelling than it is about even maps themselves. Um, and so... I, I think for me, whether or not I was aware of it, it always felt like it belonged in a narrative. I was surprised that the the book has sort of text that goes between the maps, um, and it's the story of me giving out these maps because, you know, like in the Lower East Side Boutique, people would spontaneously start telling me their story, um, and I didn't expect necessarily that these maps would have that story in between, but it it had to be that way because both that was the way that the project, um, the only way the project could have happened, but also that was that walking through the city, the, the seeing the way that Manhattan changed as you walk from the very tip top of, Man, of Manhattan. So, you know, you, you walk from the Bronx because there's a piece of Manhattan up there, and then you walk to Battery Park. Manhattan is changing like a conveyor belt, um, and, and that, that became an act of mapping for me. How many maps are in the book? There are 75 maps in the book. Uh, it's about 50 from the anonymous people I met on the street, um, or the people who are anonymous to me, and then about 25 from notable New Yorkers that I reached out to um, because I wanted to see what Neil deGrasse Tyson's map of New York looked like. I was hoping it would just be the stars above his building or something. He ended and up, what was it? He mapped uh, Manhattan Henge, which is um, the two times a year when the setting sun aligns exactly with New York's grid that he coined. Yoko Ono provided you <laughs> with the map. Yoko Ono. Yeah, it was one of the most magical moments of, of working on the project. I was giving a friend a tour of Central Park, and the friend had another friend from out of town. And I did the typical New York tour guide thing, and I pointed out the Dakota, and I said, um, this is where John Lennon used to live, and I think Yoko Ono still lives there. And the friend of the friend says she does. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, a little over 10 years ago, a friend of mine was passing by, saw her, runs up to her, hands a piece of paper to her and says, will you sign this? Will you sign this? And she takes the paper, 
allegedly, rips it in half and hands half back to him and says, if you meet me back here in 10 years, we'll rejoin the halves and I'll sign it. And this friend is saying that they exchanged letters over the course of the decade and 10 years later, the friend goes back to the you know front of the Dakota and she's there. They rejoin the halves and she signs it. <laughs> my, my friend is standing there and sort of mouth open and I can only think to say what address did he use. And so I sent a map and a letter to that address. I let my dad put it in the mail because the Beatles are his gods. And a month later, my mom's like, you got a letter from from uh, from this particular building. Do you know what it's about? And I'm like, oh, and I, you know, sort of squirrel away into a corner of my room and, and open it because I, I, you couldn't quite tell whether there was anything in there or not. And it, of course, inside was her map. And what is on Yoko Ono's map? <laughs> it is a line down the length of Manhattan and it says memory lane. It's It's simple in a way that I think celebrates the spirit of the project, which is um, that so much of mapping, so much of of celebrating what's important about a life in the city is about the act of distillation rather than marking everything that ever happened. Was it challenging for you to whittle down the book to only 75 maps? <laughs> Initially, absolutely. Um, but then I sort of found that the maps sorted themselves, that I found that there were different topics that kept coming up. And so what it took was me scanning and printing all these maps and then just clearing as much floor space as I could and allowing the maps to stack themselves. Uh, so there were a lot of maps about being a mother. There, was a, there were a lot of maps about first kisses. There were a lot of maps about the 1960s riots up by Columbia. And I knew that I wanted you know, a map about you know, met my wife to pair with something that was a little bit more promiscuous, potentially. And so I just looked in the pile of ones talking about affairs for the one that would, you know, most comedically embody that. Um, Or with the maps of the riots, there was one that very clearly labeled what year it took place. And I had a map from a child point of view in exactly the same year. And I wanted those to be on facing pages because I think what this project celebrates is the way that memory is layered over each other, either in time or in space. So does this project also continue to live online? It does, absolutely. There's um, a website, mapyourmemories.com, and I am continuously posting maps on there. It's been great doing talks in colleges and in high schools and you know having their teachers send me their maps. Um, so... Largely now, it's, it's students whose maps I'm putting up there. Becky, thank you so much. Thank you. Becky Cooper is the author of Mapping Manhattan, a love and sometimes hate story in maps by 75 New Yorkers. Again, the project lives on at mapyourmemories.com. This is Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. Map maker, map maker, make me a map. Stefan Van Dam is a map maker based right here in New York City. I'm the president and uh, creative dictator of Van Damme Media in New York, where we um, use maps to tell stories about history, about politics, about cities. It's been an adventure over the last 35 years to do this in various media, from uh, three-dimensional pop-ups to the Street Smart series to publishing atlases to doing 4D maps and now to do data mapping for... Um, uh, uh, applications on the web. 
What inspired you to get into the map making business? While a student at Parsons School of Design, um, I chanced upon a way of how to fold a piece of paper um, that then refolded by itself and um, craved cartographic uses. So I looked up these uh, German cartographers to show me the ropes and introduced me to that and through this process became uh, a publisher of Van Damme to publish um, cities in this pop-up format but also in a laminated street smart format to over 85 cities in the world from Amsterdam to Zurich with Beijing and Denver and uh, Havana and Cuba and, and New York City with over 25 titles in between. So it's been a wonderful journey to use the power of the map to um, get people to understand complex issues, primarily urban issues. Give me an example of an issue that you can explain through a map. Well, I think an atlas is a wonderful way to, it's a collection of maps uh, that shows context. Um, I think the pop-up maps present the city through a packaging, uh, um, uh, unique packaging in a very different way, sort of to unfold the magic of the place. Maps, good maps, uh, practice the art of ellipsis, which means they know what not to show. And in that way, they function like a great poem um, uh, or a great piece of music to let you read between the lines. And legibility is a key issue. I think we're using all the same tools that a painter would use, but we use it cartographically. Um, and then to make those maps move and orchestrate them with sound to create an experience that is indelible and memorable, uh, where we can actually learn something. You mentioned that you have created maps for many cities, but did it all start with a map of New York City? It certainly did. <laughs> New York City, probably one of the most mapped cities uh, in the universe. Uh, arguably, Jefferson's grid gone 3D and haywire, uh, but also an old Dutch colonial part of town where even native New Yorkers tend to get lost. A wonderful project we were hired to do in the 90s, one of the efforts to put Lower Manhattan on the map, uh, was to do a program called Heritage Trails that mapped 42 historic locations. And we used a sheer perspective in order to let you see the paths at the foot of the canyon while also being able to see each individual building. And uh, this is before WebGL let you do those wonderful things online. We actually had a model that we sliced and then redrew. That wayfinding system helped put Lower Manhattan on the map and is still in use um, almost 25 years later. Now, you also put Brooklyn on the map before Brooklyn was on the map, so to speak. Um, we'd like to think that way. I think that Brooklynites have more of a sense of themselves than almost any other group of people. But in the 90s, uh, if you lived in Brooklyn, and I have to admit that I live in Manhattan and I've never lived in Brooklyn, but um, people had a hard time getting people to uh, Manhattanites to come to Brooklyn uh, for a dinner party. And uh, so um, in collaboration with the Brooklyn Chamber and the president of the time, a gentleman by the name of Ken Adams, we created an atlas called B-Atlas, the Brooklyn Atlas, 
um, that showed the borough in uh, it was a, a book six by six, 128 pages, that um, mapped consistently throughout the borough at a two-mile, two-square-mile scale per page. And um, it got on the front page of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. It was featured on television. And um, it helped a lot of people discover Brooklyn and, and uh, find apartments and houses there. And uh, it was a wonderful uh, way to actually walk the talk and talk the walk. <laughs> How would you describe the creative process for creating a map, a good map? Well, um, cartography consists of many uh, aspects. I think the, a good um, data collection is one of them. I think you want to have a point of view. You want to know who your audience is. Um, you want to have a format in which to communicate this effectively. So there's a lot of moving parts that you want to bring together. Uh, in our 4D maps, which are iPhone and iPad applications, we actually create a 3D model that we then move through with sound in real time, hence the fourth dimension being time, that has a slightly different considerations than if we do a street smart map, which is a laminated piece of paper, flat, accordion folded. Um, so it really depends on the audience. It depends on um, the information being conveyed. Um, so it's, uh, but it's a panoply of, of uh, graphic design, urban planning, uh, illustration, and um, packaging. What does the market tell you? Does the market tell you that most people want maps that are now accessible on their smartphones, or do people still enjoy a good old-fashioned map in the hand? Um, we like to think that both... Uh, fulfill a particular need. The, um, I think there's a, a, a basic difference in looking at the world through your phone uh, that deals with uh, understanding the context of a place. And while uh, Google and Apple and uh, MapQuest and Amazon and uh, OpenStreetMap um, are wonderful resources to visualize data, um, in the urban context, they, especially in mobile, um, tend to make it difficult for people to understand the context. It's really much more about directions. How do I get from here to there? The physical map, which is something you spread out, gets you to understand what a place is made of, how it hangs together, adjacencies, which I think are committed to memory more uh, effectively than on the telephone. And I find this in cities that I have mapped, that I have traveled in, that when I rely on my iPhone to get around, I actually don't know how I got from how I got here from there. But if I have to um, look it up on a map, um, it's almost like a photographic memory that stays. So I think in terms of street smarts, uh, the printed map may well be uh, more memorable and and. Uh, more memorable experience than, than relying exclusively on, on mobile media. You have been mapping Cuba, right? Yes. Um, we um, uh, went down to um, Havana to uh, meet with uh, the people at the local historian's office. It's the office that a cabinet-level position in Cuba that runs all the tourism 
in arguably the oldest city in the hemisphere, La Havana, and uh, they were very helpful to provide us with cultural uh, data and resources, and uh, then we combined this with um, uh, excellent data from the CIA, ironically, to shape two wonderful products that, because of the lack of functioning internet in Cuba, are essential travel uh, necessities when you go to Cuba. Um, it takes an hour to download your email in a hotel at $8 uh, an hour, so it's not really a viable thing to move around. Um, it's proven to be uh, very successful. We are in the third edition in a year for both the Havana and the Cuba maps. They are number one bestsellers on Amazon, um, and we're trying to we're exploring a whole variety of ways to take that um, uh, base map and uh, bring music and architecture to come to play on the platform of the map. Was your plan to map Cuba in the works prior to the U.S.-Cuba relations uh, being eased? We joke about this, that we had, uh, and people were asking us, you know, who called? Was it Fidel or was it uh, the State Department? It was in the air that change was um, uh, about to happen, um, and it just uh, needed to be mapped, I think, in a way uh, that is legible, that's sexy, that sort of brings the essence of Cuba um, to the fore, and uh, we look forward to creating uh, additional products about the island that are electronically uh, available and accessible um, that combine music and architecture and the map. Is there a part of New York City or anywhere outside of the city that you have not yet mapped yet that you just can't wait to get your hands on? We have an interesting project. It's a resiliency project. Um, um, there is a, 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 I think, a need for um, people in the city, especially people who own buildings, to understand what uh, climate change uh, um, and the impact it will have on their properties um, and on the flood insurance um, that um, comes with that. And FEMA, which is the Federal Emergency Management Organization, is just issuing new, um, uh, new flood maps that will compel and require uh, almost double the number of building owners to purchase this insurance. Flood insurance can be very pricey and uh, has been growing at rates that caused Congress to pass a bill to limit them to no more than 20% per annum. Um, but most of the flood maps that we have seen so far don't make you feel that your feet are getting wet. And I think while they visualize data on a macro and micro scale, they don't grab you and... Uh, um, really make you part of this. We'd like to change this. Um, we think we want people to understand that this is a serious issue, what they can do, what the resources are for them to reach out to in various agencies, federal, state, and city, um, uh, because we think it's a key issue. And as you look at the map uh, and the projection of the 500-year floods going forward, the old Manhattan, before it was built out, is starting to reemerge. So Canal Street is becoming a canal again. And uh, it's actually quite serious in, in uh, southern Brooklyn and Queens, which um, where large swaths of land will simply disappear unless we take corrective action 
yesterday. Uh, and um, so there's a wonderful host of proposals. I don't know whether you have heard about the dry line, which is a ring of wetlands with uh, reinforced gates in sort of a, a Dutch manner to protect uh, Manhattan. I think we need to, uh, the map will go a long way to have people understand how, uh, to, understand, to understand the issue and what can be done about this. Uh, I think advocacy, graphic design, architecture, music, history, the way we talk about these issues all have one thing in common, and that is the map. And um, so we like to look at it as a playful means to engage people into understanding complex issues and making those issues eminently clear and walking away with an experience that they will not forget. So, yes, the power of the map, of the Van Damme map. <laughs> Stefan, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Stefan Van Dam is an award-winning cartographer, graphic designer, and information architect. He's the president and creative director of Van Dam Media, based right here in New York City. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.